Hello and welcome to our third episode of Uscantium's podcast series. My name is Özge and I will be relaying a number of podcast sessions published by Uscantium International Law Association. The podcasts are not only for international loaners and freaks, but also for young professionals and change makers from diverse backgrounds and specializations worldwide and we will be talking all aspects of international relations in the era of globalization. And in our third episode, I'm really happy to have one of the leaders of his generation and a good friend, Alice Wattström. Alice is project analyst in prevention of violent extremism and peace building for UNDP Tunisia, and we have known each other from the Hague Academy of International Law. Welcome to our third episode, Alice. How are you? You are here to share your experience and knowledge with us. Are you excited? Hello, okay. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be with you. Uh, people who may be listening to us would be curious about your career journey. My question is, um, how did it all begin? So you were based in Paris for education. What brought you to Paris? Um, so what brought me to Paris? I really enjoyed studying French um, in in junior high school. I must say, I was quite quite the language uh, nerd, um, and. In high school, the there was an opportunity to um, to do um, your second high school year in Paris at the Swedish School of Paris, mm-hmm. and I jumped on it. So I spent a year there. Uh, I learned French. It was a great experience. Uh, and so after I had gone back to Sweden to finish high school, I decided to to go back. And I also wanted to st- study law, so I applied to the Sorbonne Law School, and I ended up doing my bachelor's degree in international and European law at the Sorbonne. So all in all, uh, I lived there for um, about five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, after that, I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to continue in law. So um, I applied for an internship Uh, at the UN headquarters in New York in mm-hmm. public information. And I did a six-month internship there, uh, at the end of which I was lucky enough to be hired. So uh, I worked um, for about two and a half years at the UN headquarters. And uh, I will talk more in, in detail about that uh, about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I felt like it was time to go back to school and do my master's. So I did my um, international human rights law master's at Lund University and the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, following that, I did some uh, legal translation and I worked at Transparency. Transparency International in mm-hmm, Berlin, mm-hmm. where I mainly researched uh, land corruption in Africa. So land corruption is basically corruption in regards to the land sector, but also land deals and land uh, management, and specifically in the countries of Zambia, Liberia, and uh, Sierra Leone. And um, from February of this year, I am working, as you mentioned, at uh, UNDP in mm-hmm. Tunisia in uh, peace building and uh, prevention of violent extremism. Many thanks. Uh, I'm sure our listeners would like to know more about your United Nations experience in New York. Um, what would you like to say on this from the international law perspective, actually? Right. So, uh, as I mentioned, I was at the UN headquarters in New York for a little more than two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
at the Department of Public Information, but also uh, at the Office of Legal Affairs. But both of these experiences were relevant um, from an international legal perspective because they uh, highlighted in different ways uh, different perspectives that you that you can have on uh, international law. So my first job was basically to inform the public about the different branches of the work of the UN. And in doing that, I observed the expectations and reactions from people on what the UN should be able to do and perhaps how international law should work. Uh, and the people, I mean, people in general expect the UN to do a lot and sometimes overestimate the organization's powers. And whereas the UN Charter does give the organization a very broad mandate to act, uh, it often also requires political will. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to de- to um, decisions in the Security Council, for example, um, we sometimes very clearly see how political self-interest come into play, which sometimes blocks the organization's ability to act. And this in itself may not be contrary to international law, um, but people in general can have a really hard time understanding how it can be like that. Uh, and in my second job in legal affairs, I worked with criminal accountability for UN staff members. So these were cases where UN employees were suspected of wrongdoings of different, uh, of different, of different kinds. Um, and the organization does not have criminal jurisdiction, as mm-hmm. some of the international lawyers might know. So the UN cannot prosecute. But what it does is to refer credible allegations to the relevant state or states. So who might those states be? It's either uh, the state of nationality of the state uh, of the staff member or the state on whose territory the alleged wrongdoing took place. And then the secretary general usually waives privileges and immunities to allow for the state to conduct its, uh, its investigations and perhaps to bring the person to justice. Oh, well done. Um, I would like I would like to ask you on the issue of countering violent extremism in uh, many region. Um, let's start with the stand of this concept in international law. What actually is it? So, um, the UN Security Council has a mandate defined by the UN Charter to address issues related to international peace and security, right? And mm-hmm. without going into too much detail, insofar as terrorist acts and organizations pose a threat to international peace and security, which it has been um, established that they do, the UN has adopted several resolutions on counterterrorism as a response. So there is, for example, the UN Global Counterterrorism Strategy, adopted by the General Assembly in 2016, where prevention of violent extremism is an important part. And additionally, there is the Secretary General's action plan from the same year that specifically treats uh, prevention of violent extremism. And the Security Council is really pushing more and more for a comprehensive approach to Mm -hmm. countering the spread of terrorism. And the preventive part of those efforts include a number of things, such as reducing inequalities by promoting female leadership and women's active participation in preventive efforts and including young people's uh, democratic participation, especially in decision-making, as Mm -hmm. well as improving uh, living conditions in general. So this is really the framework uh, in which uh, UNDP can intervene on this topic. Brilliant. Um, I think in current counter-terrorism efforts, the potential of civil society organizations is recognized by international actors for countering radical narratives and 
implementing prevention activities in non-Western countries. Um, civil society-led interventions, it is assumed, constitute a more sustainable as well as locally acceptable approach to reduce the threat of radicalization. Um, in line with this, international actors, including European Union, United Nations and European Union key member states, have lately inc- incorporated this strategy in Tunisia, which since the fall of the Ben Ali regime in 2011 uh, has experienced an increase in jihadist activities uh, challenging the democratic consolidation of the country. Do you think, uh, Alice, there is enough media attention to the current developments in the region? Um, what do you think about UNDP's position on that? Um, So let's start with the UNDP's position. Um, So the work of UNDP is supporting peoples and governments in achieving the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And as you mentioned, the contribution of civil society is recognized as extremely important for advancing uh, development worldwide. And same goes for preventing violent extremism. Um, Mm -hmm. So as we discussed earlier, including youth and women in decision making and in reducing inequalities is really a crucial part of preventing extremism. And uh, UNDP, as well as actually the very specific project that I'm working in, which is called Tamkeen, does support civil society organizations in order to do that. So that includes reinforcing their professionalism, their ability to to actually complement the state uh, in doing these things that we mentioned. Um, and then as far as media intention goes, I think that there could be more attention given to all the progress that is being made in, in Tunisia and to how well the democratic transition is going since 2011. I mean, recently, just in the few, past few months, um, a president passed away, um, leading to advanced presidential and legis- legislative elections uh, without any... Um, particular problems, everything has gone smoothly, and there has been no major contestations of the election results, uh, which there were um, there were some fears that, that there might be a, a protest that the elections uh, election results would not be accepted. But this has not been the case. And I think that this could be this could really be further further emphasized because Tunisia really is an, an example for the region. Well, um, thank you very much for your deep and enlightening insight on the issues we have uh, discussed in uh, our third podcast, Elise. Um, I'm wishing you the best in this long career journey and I'm sure uh, our next episodes will be as inspiring and uh, entertaining as this one. Uh, finally, I would like to thank all our listeners for joining our podcast session. We, ha- we hope you enjoyed your time as much as we did. Please do not forget to follow us on our social media accounts and Spotify. And please do not hesitate to contact us for sharing your feedbacks, further suggestions and creative ideas. Stay tuned with Yuskantium.